been reading books about magic of the serious kind, not not the rabbit kind of magic, since I was a little boy. The whole reason I got into film, um, I've told this story a million times, but I was working on a painting of a garden at night, and the plants in the dark night painting began to move, and I heard a wind. And, and I, I thought, oh, um, this is interesting. Welcome to Ritual Light and Sound, a podcast about occultism and esoterica in film. In this episode, we are discussing Stuart Gordon's Dreams in the Witch House. What's up with all this talk about non-Euclidean geometry? Can shapes and angles really direct energies, affect realities? The answer to this is yes. What is sacred geometry, and can it really be both a gateway and a barrier to things beyond our world? Let's get into all this. But first, let's bring on a guest to talk about the film. I'm here with my homie Edwin Callahan of Gravely Unusual Magazine, and... Uh, super secret black metal projects in the Appalachian area and uh, other things. Uh, Edwin is here to talk to me about the Stuart Gordon film Dreams in the Witch House today. But before I just keep talking about this movie, Edwin, say hello to the peoples. What's up, guys? Uh, I'm really pumped to be here. It's one of my favorite uh, Gordon um, joints, so uh, I'm really pumped, man. Right. Yes, it's Stuart Gordon joint. Uh, yeah. So uh, let's. I like to. I like to kick it off with this. And boy, am I rusty, listeners, because I haven't recorded one of these in forever. Because I'm probably just gonna go all out and include the earlier portion of our chat where I'm just like laying out why I haven't done one of these things in a while. Because part of my philosophy behind just fucking doing this thing today is like I gotta stop trying to like wait for the perfect day, you know, or to, to feel like it matters or something. I got to just fucking talk about this movie because that's what we do here. So um, here we are to talk about movies and kooky shit, y'all. But you know, there is a revolution outside Americans and fuck them police, black lives matter, all of that sort of thing. Edwin feels the same, by the way. Don't take his silence as like complacency. <laughs> no, not at all, dude. <laughs> fuck the police. Black lives matter. 100%. So, Dreams in the Witch House, Stuart Gordon. This is a, uh, I think it technically counts as a feature film because I think all you have to hit is 50 minutes to be a feature. I think. I'm not sure about that. I mean, I know, I um, I, I, I watched it on um, Masters of Horror back in the day and that was probably my first, one of my first introductions to Lovecraft, actually, like <laughs> to be honest. Oh, maybe. cool, man! Did fucking a great one because we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about this. But like for me, this is the most spot on Lovecraft adaptation adaptation outside of uh, the silent film, The Call of Cthulhu. That one is to me 100 percent the the most truest and and best Lovecraft film adaptation. I've never seen but, it. I've never seen it. We, um, dude, I have it downloaded on my Plex. I watch Plex all the time. <laughs> Shit. Okay. Well, I'll fucking I'll add you to my Plex after this, man, and you should go and watch it on my list. 
as soon as you can. It's fucking incredible, dude. dude. It's yeah, so good. I will. But yeah, so I, I mentioned running time just to make note of the fact that this is not technically a film as such. I mean, this thing was not released standalone or theatrically or anything like that. It was indeed an episode of Showtime's Masters of Horror. So that's what we're here to talk about. Stuart Gordon's Dreams in the Witch House from Showtime's Masters of Horror, which was what, like mid-2000s, mid to late 2000s? Yeah, it was like 2005, I'm thinking. 2004, okay, 2005, 2006, something like that. Right on. That's further back than I thought. And Dreams in the Witch House was from season one. Season one was definitely the strongest fucking season of that show. Yeah, for sure. It had Dreams in the Witch House and Cigarette Burns by Carpenter. Yeah, Cigarette Burns, dude. (laughs) That was like, God, that was such another great one, man. Yeah, yeah. We might have to get back together and talk about that one. (laughs) Yeah, that's one of my favorites, too. Because, yeah, there's there's a lot of excuses to call that an occult movie. But, yeah, so here we go. Stuart Gordon's Dreams in the Witch House there, Edwin. First of all, hit me with your overall impressions. Uh, I assume that you like probably love the film uh dude i mean i'm like ecstatic over this film when you actually asked me to do it i was like oh shit man this is like my favorite you know my favorite adaptation of lovecraft you know know, uh gordon always comes with lovecraft in his own it's from his own perspective it's definitely not like i don't know if lovecraft would be like hey this is what i wanted it to be but at the same time (laughs) i think with dreams in the witch house he would probably be like not like rolling over in his grave or anything. He'd probably be like, oh, this is actually like pretty good. As far as like the movie, I think what I like about it most is that first of all, there's like, there is somewhat of love interest. You know, I think they just had to do that commercially, but at the same time, it's not at all. Like it's like, it's just like, they just, I feel like Gordon just had to throw that in there. You know what I'm saying? To get it on TV, but. Yes, I'll circle back to this. The way the 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 familiar looked, um, uh, <laughs> Jenkins is just like, yeah, oh, dude, it's just like that is so it's so campy, but at the same time, that scared the shit out of me. I was like, what? I've never seen anything like this. I've never seen like, in the way they shoot it. It's like you can obviously tell he's like a full full grown person, but they shoot it in like he's like small. And there's a scene where he's like on his chest, and there's a scene in the you know the the fucking insane asylum and you know that's always a good lovecraft (laughs) trope the insane um but uh yeah man i in the purple light the light the way the light is scary i mean just uh i mean everything about it man it's just uh i really dude i don't really have any complaints about this movie at all right on man so um you mentioned the love interest right and uh and you also mentioned what lovecraft may or may not have thought about Stuart gordon or this thing in particular, if he had gotten got a chance to see it, the deal with me and, and Stuart Gordon is that when I was younger, I hated Stuart Gordon movies. Really? Yeah, man. The only ones I saw were I saw Reanimator, and then I saw maybe fifteen or twenty minutes of Castle Freak mm-hmm. when I was fifteen, sixteen, something like that. And I only sought the movies out because. I knew obviously that reanimator was based on Herbert West reanimator. And then I read that this guy, Gordon makes a ton of Lovecraftian Lovecraftian movies and that he had done uh, the outsider in the form of castle freak or whatever. So I watched Mm -hmm. reanimator and I was like, this is fucking goofy. Like 
wannabe Return of the Living Dead slasher shit pretending to be Lovecraft, and it's so far from feeling like Lovecraft. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. As a 15-year-old who was like, looking for the the hp lovecraft movie i was like no this is fucking just another like schlocky 80s thing pretending to be a lovecraft story and and because of that i couldn't get into just it like on its own thing because i've always i grew up on friday the 13th and you know freddy and and all that goofy 80s shit but i didn't want to fucking see that in no lovecraft story you know yeah yeah (laughs) and so i really really didn't like reanimator and then I guess there's not enough Cat- pessimism in it. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. No. And same thing with Castle Freak. I, I couldn't even watch that whole movie because I was like, man, what? This has jack shit to do with the outsider. How dare they even yeah. tell me on the Internet that this is based on the outsider. This is fucking stupid. And furthermore, what I didn't like about those two movies was this is going to sound totally fucking stupid because, you know, I'm like a big Joe Bob mutant guy. Um, I was like, there's too much fucking nudity in these movies. Yes, dude. <laughs> all these naked women and all these titties. This is not Lovecraft, dude. Yeah, like, to be hate this to shit. be Lovecraft. Yes, yes. I totally, I totally agree <laughs> with you, man. Like, I really do. Yeah, and so, but what I what sold me eventually on Gordon was Dagon. I saw Dagon. God damn, Dagon is awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, When I was maybe 19 or 20, me and my older brother rented it. This was still back in the fucking video days. We got that bad boy on VHS. And I was like, holy shit. And it it clicked for me. Like, I still didn't really like it, but I I had, I got a glimpse of Gordon's big picture. So the way that Stuart Gordon gets Lovecraft movies made is with those titties. Yep. You know what I mean? Like he's like, mm-hmm. I have freaking goddess Barbara Crampton on deck and she will take off all she's got in this totally bizarre script based on a guy who's been dead, dead 80 years and some really hard to sell concepts. Yeah, but no, that's how he that's how he sells those fucking scripts to money, man. Which I think I think what Crampton gets, she shows she shows her boobs in almost all of them, right? Does she? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, well, which I don't I know. Not in and, Castle Freak. Okay, not in Castle Freak, but then you don't need that in Castle Freak because you got fucking weird fingering scenes and uh, right. fucking yes, naked Castle Freak, fucking uh, right, yeah. yeah. Castle Freak is super sexual, which is very weird because. But here's the thing: I don't want to go off on Castle Freak. Here's the thing, though: is so you know, like with Lovecraft. Um, we know that's like sexuality is like super repressed with him. Like he was kind of like very put off by it. Um, if anyone's like, absolutely, a, you know, I'm sure me and you know, I mean, but listeners, like if you like look into Lovecraft's life, he was, he wasn't very sexually driven, but I think maybe, I don't know, maybe like that's something he, you don't see it in his stories. You know what I mean? At all. But there's not really any sex. Is there at all any, I don't, I've never read one story no. with any kind of, love interest or sexual interest at all no well there's he as far as i right off the top of my head anyway and there there ain't many lovecraft stories you know so for fans like us who have read them you you probably read them all (laughs) and probably read them all a few times but uh i the thing on the doorstep is about a relationship like dude marries up you know he marries that rich 
woman. And that was when he was with what's her name, and he moved to New York for a little while, correct? Like that was during. And that, that was period, obviously yeah. like his story about dealing with relationships, you know. And what happens in that story? The weird woman that the guy marries turns out to be like a kooky, evil occult practitioner, and she steals the guy's body. Which that's what happened to him. He was like forced to have sex with her. Right. And uh, yeah, so all of that seems to be like how he was dealing with things, you know, because he kind of felt obligated to marry because he was the only son and heir. Uh, yeah. So he married this, you know, fairly well-to-do woman. I think she was, and that's not even important. But obviously, dude was pressured to do the American man thing and, and carry on the line, but he really didn't want to. And yeah, that probably all came out <clears throat> in The Thing in the Doorstep, which is a story about a man being manipulated by an evil occultist woman with dark powers um which probably is all you need to know about what lovecraft thought about women and about how he felt about women a lot of people go another route which i i don't put any stock in this but a lot of people think that the reason all his creatures and gods and stuff are so like fleshy and tentacly and squamous you know is because all of that can be looked at vaguely as being vaginal yeah like female anatomy almost right um, which grossed him out so he sort of ascribes some of those attributes to his his creatures and his, his otherworldly gods and his things that his characters can't understand and are afraid of uh but i don't, I don't really I, I don't i don't see that yeah. really that much um, I don't either. That kind of like suggests that Lovecraft knew more about Vag than he probably did. You know what I mean? I feel like he's <laughs> like not I, very like it, when it comes to subtext that deep. That's not really his thing. I mean, he's pretty obvious with his subtext. You know what I'm saying? Like we know what he's afraid of when he when he says right. certain words, right? You know? Yeah, he's afraid of foreigners and women and the ocean. exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, um, but so all of this, you know, to say that, like I said, like, uh, that's why Gordon's movies always have the strong female presence, because I don't think he could have sold these scripts otherwise. I mean, how hard has it been to get Lovecraft movies adapted, you know, throughout film history? You don't really think about it like when Roger Corman did it with they had to sell him as out of ground and pose. You know what I mean? Like, um right. He's not very marketable in terms of content. He, and he that's what's making him, him hard to adapt to the screen, which is why I applaud Gordon a lot, is because it's it's not easy to adapt Lovecraft to the screen. I mean, think about it, dude. In Dreams in the Witch House, the short story, most of his stories don't have any fucking dialogue. There's no quotations. There's no, it's just a no. guy <laughs> a guy's perspective. It's one person's perspective. Yeah. And even Dreams of the Witch House is third person, past tense, you know what I'm saying? Like and right. I mean, for Gordon to take a story like Dreams in the Witch House and make it so entertaining on the fucking screen and still make it marketable on a Showtime show, that's a badass directing. It really is. Yeah, no, he <clears throat> he killed it. And uh, I mean, and another kind of a goofy yet great example of how good he was at what he did was that your man snuck some tits even in Dreams in the Witch House. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know exactly. what I mean? Like, he's managed to do it in every fucking one of his Lovecraftian movies. Even that one, which seems like impossible to sneak some boobies into, but your man got it done. 
And, uh, and yeah, that always, every time he does it, I'm always like, oh, here we go. Here's Gordon with the boobs again. But it, the movies are still good, you know? And yeah, and what sold me on that was Dagon, because for me, Dagon is a fucking great, a wonderful adaptation of Shadow over Innsmouth, but really while is. also being real strangely sexy and sexual at the same time, which makes sense in a story about heredity. What's the word I'm looking for here? Her heredity. Hmm. Story heredit. about heritage. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah, a story about heritage, you know, and. Uh, like familial horror, it only makes sense to bring the sex angle into it because I mean that's what that's what Deep Ones do. They Deep Ones' whole gag is make babies with humans. You know that's their whole fucking angle <laughs> is to propagate their species. So what I was gonna ask was what stands out for you about this film, but I think you you've mentioned a few things, so let's let's start with that. Uh like Brown Jenkin and his design stands out to you, right? The idea of a familiar in general is really like I don't know what it is to me. It like has this like mystique to me that you have these like animal followers that you can do use to do your bidding. You know what I'm saying? Like um you know like to have like a humanoid rat thing to like go out and do your bidding at your command because you control it. Like that's super cool to me. And um, just the fact that it uses, this is one big part of this film that really, really hits me um, in the whole story itself is that it uses science to explain supernatural. So it's not really supernatural. There's, it's all explained through science. It's like, it's like, all these Euclidean angles there, if I'm not saying it right, but like the, the idea of a out of place angle is very creepy to me. You know what I mean? And the fact that it's yeah, man. super strange and it's like, it, it can make you feel a certain way. Like say if you look like at certain angles at like a house, it can scare you because it looks weird. That's right. Um, it's, yeah, using, absolutely. It's, it's using, it's using form and a theory of forms in a way that's very, it's like, primitive in its fear so i think the way (laughs) gordon can adapt that is just a feat in itself like uh when he looks in the apartment when uh gilman moves into the apartment for the first time you know when you read the story you're like what the fuck does that angle look like and then you see it and you're like that's exactly what i think it would look like you know it's like this out of place spot um the the fact that the use of a there's like a counterpart to gilman um the a fucking priest not the priest downstairs but the religious guy what's right, his name yeah I can't remember his name. Uh, no it's killing me it's a spanish name right he's a yeah he's yeah, a yeah um yeah well the, the when he like hits his head it's basically oh, he's yeah. lost faith too in the end he has lost faith too in the end and he's tried so hard because he encountered her before and killed a child and he thought you know him protecting himself through religious faith all this time would you know protect him and then he realizes that once again the science of evil manifests over religious dogma you know what i mean so i mean there's a lot of right. just a lot of subtext in this and i think that's what's really cool about gordon and how he uses subtext which also is really cool it's like every scene is set up like it's like a stage play because he you know he's from organic theater or whatever and his blocking and the way he sets up shots i mean they're very 
it's very theatrical. Like, I think that's what makes him campy almost to some people because he's very theatrical. He uses, you know, the ability of the, the set design and all that shit. It's like everything piles together to make a very play-like setting. Right, yeah, for sure. And I think this uh, this movie in particular highlights that theatricality of his style big time because it's so restricted this movie's you know it's obviously a budget thing and it's really restricted there's only a few locations not a lot of camera movement you know it's real simple and and could have been pulled off on a stage it could have and then earlier you know you mentioned the the crazy lighting the purple lighting and that's all just stage lighting you know that's a hundred percent gordon being like you know what we need to convey this, you know, shifting of dimensions and this portal space opening up light. Give me some stage lights in here. I got this covered and it works perfectly. The movie's been so influential to me that I like wrote a few stories like when I first started writing about using the purple light, the the light, the weird use of light. And I try to like adapt that to my story. So it's like even transcended back to the page from a Gordon movie. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> very influential cool. you know what i'm saying yeah that's really cool yeah and yes yeah, so you uh you talked about like when you read this the story you know and he describes this this strange angle in the corner of the rented room that gilman's in same deal like what i could picture that very clearly or I, no i shouldn't say very clearly I, I picture it vaguely in my head you know what i mean it's just like a weird corner space in a room but i can't say that i like really really mapped it out in my headspace but then you nailed it i mean when you see it in gordon's film like that's it you're like oh shit that is fucking weird (laughs) yeah 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 and it's so such a simple simple thing um and like you said it works on a really base psychology which is that right angles look proper and fine to us and things that are not right angles look a little fucking skewed and strange. And I don't know 100% why that is. I mean, it might just be as simple as right angles look stable and strong and therefore safe, you know? And and things that are not at right angles don't look stable and strong and safe. They look dangerous. Well, yeah, you wouldn't go on a you wouldn't go up into a building that looked like it was like jutting out to the, you know, uh, like a, a 70 degree angle at an obtuse triangle. You wouldn't go on that. You know what <laughs> right. I mean? Or even like you see a fucking roller coaster that goes straight up and goes straight down and has all these humps and why mountains look sublime. They're all these weird angles. You know what I mean? Things that kind of just scare you. <clears throat> yeah. And I, I like that you, you said it's a primitive fear because I, I think that nails it. I think it, that's gotta be something that's really old for us. You know? Yeah, for sure. So Brown Jenkin, the lighting. Anything else stands out in particular for you that you want to hit on? Uh I mean, that's about it, and that it also it doesn't really have a happy ending, man. It, it's like I said, that's true love crap. You don't have oh, a happy ending. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I mean yeah. Exactly. Ho- Hollywood doesn't like that. Hollywood doesn't like loose ends. Right. Yeah. That's why like everything about a Lovecraft story is such a hard sell to any pack of hollywood dudes with money is because you got to be like well first off uh there's no women in this story it's it's all dudes it might even just be one guy there's not even any dialogue uh it's got a real kick you in the nuts downer ending 
And so um, Hollywood Money Man is like, oh, nope, nope, and nope. I'm going to pass on that script, bro. Um, and a, ba- a baby why... dies. A baby dies. That's even scarier, too, you know? <laughs> right, yeah, which is, um, man, that's not part of the story, though, right? Uh, As yes. And that wasn't in the short story? It is? No, yeah, yeah, the baby thing is, it. well, the there's no, like, girl with a baby, but there is a scene where, um, like I said, he threw the, Gordon threw the girl in specifically for this presentation of a feature. You know what I mean? But in the story, there's just like hearsay of like people saying, oh, yeah, we saw a and I'm not going to use the term that Lovecraft uses in the story. Uh, but he says basically like a um, a black figure with a girl and a man are running with like a baby. And it's like there's like a baby missing and there's like a little like big rat like creature following them in the night. That's like all it says about it. You know what I mean? And then there's the bones at the end, which they put that in the, the movie too. the bones, the children's bones. But the, um, the stuff you're talking about, that's like back, um, back when the Spaniard killed all the kids, right? Like no, right. Babies right. Don't yeah. Get killed in Gilman's time. No, 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 no. Yeah. Yeah. That's all like hearsay okay. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 I was just making sure I, I got that right. Um, yeah, no, hundred percent, and uh, and that's interesting because he like he added that, <laughs> and he still yeah sold yeah the script. yeah. But I do feel like Masters of Horror on Showtime was in a very like they didn't show up to fuck around. You know what I mean? Yeah. The whole deal. I think Mick Garris went to Showtime and was like, "I can get this thing happening. We can get all these guys on board, but you can't tell them what to do. Like it's gonna have to be." you get 55 minutes to do whatever the fuck you can do with this amount of money kind of thing. And that's what they all did, you know, cause that first season hits hard, dude. Fucking, have you seen all of it? Have you seen Jennifer by Dario? I love, yeah, I love Jennifer, dude. Whoa. I listened to a podcast with, uh, <laughs> Steven Weber on, uh, Mick Garris's podcast oh, talking shit. about making Jennifer with Argento and stuff. And that he tried to help write with Argento, but Argento was like, sometimes like, nah, man, this is how we're doing this. Like, we're gonna do this script my way like um which jennifer is one of the first ones i saw and i wasn't even like like i said dude i I mean i didn't really get into like deep into like my horror movie like stuff and until i was like 19 and stuff man i was always kind of like a more just like on the cusp of it and then like i said masters of horror when i saw it when i was like 15 that's kind of one of the things that pushed me into diving into horror like a lot a lot cool man i mean for fucking great introduction because that that first season really delivered on the title and you get to you get to see everybody that needs to be seen you know absolutely okay here we go sir as a horror film do you find dreams in the witch house effectively scary or frightening uh yeah definitely i mean it's right i think we've already touched on that already but yeah there's not a lot of, especially think about the time period. Mm-hmm. So Gordon sold Lovecraft movies in the 80s. You know what I mean? When he could use a lot of that body horror shit with Reanimator and From Beyond. And even, what did Dagon come before Massive Horror? That was like 2001, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah Dagon's first, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and Dagon. And that's like, you know, horror wasn't really much of like a thing for like Lovecraft at the time. It was more like Hostel and Saw and shit like that was yeah. getting popular like more blumhouse was like kind of like finally like taking hold of stuff and making it more of the theatrical commercial sellers you know um but to to make a lovecraft movie in that time and 
to make it like the way it was like you didn't see that shit so obviously like as a kid think about it you're like flipping through the channels on showtime late at night because you're you know you shouldn't be up and you're trying to find some dirty movie or something and oh masters of horror is on and then you catch dreams of the witch house dude i I couldn't be able to go to sleep if i saw that you know what i mean like as a as a 15 year old you know but and even now it's effective like i wouldn't i wouldn't show that to my kids like I, I tried my kid got scared when i was watching it like he was like what is this i was like he's like i was like this is dreams in the witch house he's like no no and he'll say sometimes <laughs> he's like not the witch house not the witch house he thought it was scary you know i mean so that proves it right there it it's is effective. yeah right on man um and what what about it is it can you can you pinpoint what about it really this that is scary because uh, i think yeah, it sort what, of works on a couple of different levels but there's definitely levels of like uh, just the use of practical effects as in like you don't really see any monsters except for really, you know, the familiar is the most monstrous thing. But even, you know, is it they don't say it in the the movie. I don't think they say what God or it is that he's signing the book with. It's just the man in the black, the man in black or something like right, that. Right. The, the black man. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which, which is, is that's Nyarthalatep, right? Um if i'm not right, mistaken yep. yeah yep that's him and he you know the, the cloak and the, the obsidian dagger i mean this is occult stuff that you know you haven't seen in you know probably 20 years of movies at the time you know what i mean like that has been on a big television show so i mean yeah i mean just the occult aspect the witches the child sacrifice the you know sacred mathematics and the light uh, the just the everything about it man is just it's it's like it's nightmare fuel yeah for sure for sure yeah i'm right there with you and uh i i definitely i love like you said the way that it the occult stuff is presented really fucking scary and dark and a lot of times nowadays when people try that it never quite gets there for me you know i don't like the design of the set isn't quite there it looks too cheesy or polished or whatever but the that l- weird little fucking loft or whatever where Kaziah Mason the witch is hanging out in Dreams in the Witch House is scary as shit like and it, there's a lot of subtle shit going on too because uh, the, the design of the place looks great it all looks like really scary witch tools that are laying around but then like the light is coming from the wrong angles everywhere (laughs) in every single shot like lights coming from places where it shouldn't come from and that's a lovecraft thing big time you know and yeah for me though i think like especially the the last couple of times that i've watched it and maybe i want to say this probably hit me the first time i saw it and the story didn't quite affect me in this way but when you see ezra godden who's fucking phenomenal actor i want to talk about him in a minute but uh when you see ezra godden in the film dreams in the witch house it really hit me in a way that the story had never got me that the real horror here is what's happening to gilman and how the poor fucking dude has no control over the situation like he there was no escape for him you know what i mean and i feel like the movie nails that down better than the the story does the story kind of feels a little basic in terms of how he interacts with things but that movie, the movie really hits you over the head with the idea that Destiny had the dude from the minute, you know, like when he walked into that fucking house, he was done. He was going to kill that fucking baby, you know, 
which is just terrible. Like who the fuck wants to kill a baby? That's gotta be one of the worst things you could be forced to, to do, you know? And the poor dude is forced into that monstrous act and then, and then forced to pay for it. Then he's just left to deal with authority after he's done it. And that to me is like the real fucking twist in the guts from that movie. Yeah. Regardless of his good intentions, man, like no, even if he tried to save the baby, even if he tried to do good, he was destined to do the wrong thing and pay for it from the, from the jump, dude. Yeah, yeah. And which is like what uh that's what buries the fucking coffin for the Spaniard, right? Cuz he he tried. He he failed personally, but he was like, "Well, maybe I can help this kid." And when it fails for the kid, too, he's like, "Oh, what was I thinking? It was never, you know, this was always the way it was going to be, and I'm just going to go hang from a rope now." <laughs> like Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so fucking grim. Uh which is all perfectly Lovecraftian the folding in the face of unimaginable terror or something that's so far beyond you that all you can do the best thing you can do is just snuff your little life out so you don't yeah, have to yeah. deal um yeah and all of that is is very scary and all of that um it's lovecraftian without having to be about cthulhu or any of the big cosmic stuff like uh, dreams in the witch house is is really intimate and and down to earth in a way that a lot of, a lot of his stories aren't but it still has that undercurrent of things that are much bigger than you and are more yeah. powerful than you and how you have no agency in life. You know, you're, you're nothing. You're just a little, you're an ant clinging to this rock <laughs> hurtling through space. I think that's where Gordon is good at kind of holding back of Lovecraft's kind of, uh, exuberance man i mean lovecraft wants to talk about you know these strange worlds that you travel to through different angles and these polyhedrons and bubbles and things that make you do wrong and gordon didn't have to show any of that stuff to be scary like you know like lovecraft had to try to be scary lovecraft used a very basic formula from a from a very basic writing structure that has really just a bunch of flowery parts in it you know lovecraft isn't really the greatest writer ever but he's very imaginative and that's what makes him awesome and love or and gordon takes that imagination and just develops it in a way for you know the screen that's just a lot of people are probably intimidated by trying to do that yeah absolutely man so the occult angle of dreams in the witch house is you know boil it down as simply as possible it comes down to sacred geometry right? The concept that shapes and forms can direct or or generate certain vibes or energies, right? Yeah. And I'm sure you're aware of the fact that this is a very real concept. Yes. Oh, yeah. Right. So whereas, you know, our, in my, some, you know, almost 15 years of occult practice, certainly has never brushed up in against anything non-Euclidean <laughs> um, <laughs> in in terms of sacred geometry, like all our, any idea of sacred geometry I've ever come across in, in study or practice is, is definitely Euclidean. And now is a decent time to break down for listeners and maybe even yourself what is meant by the term non-Euclidean, because I didn't 100% get my head wrapped around this until a couple days ago so euclidean geometry is geometry created by euclid who i guess we were talking about pythagoras earlier i don't 
know chronologically where those guys are related to each other, but they were both great Greek thinkers, I think. Don't quote me on that shit. So Euclid came up with the ideas of geometry that we are all taught and that we still use today, which all takes place on a 2D plane, right? Like all the geometric formulas that you were taught in high school takes place on a flat 2D plane. Right. And, and same for me, because uh, that's Euclidean geometry. Non-Euclidean geometry is geometry that takes place on uh, in a three-dimensional plane. So non-Euclidean geometry can account for 3D objects coming into contact with 2D objects, like uh, you know a convex surface coming up against a flat plane, and so on and so forth. Things that you can't just draw on a piece of paper things that you have to think about three-dimensionally. These are, this is non-Euclidean geometry. Uh, nowadays, we have a pile of theories and formula that account for parabolic surfaces meeting up with flat surfaces and all that kind of thing. There's a whole lot of non-Euclidean math you can actually study and become really good at. But in Lovecraft's day, it was a lot less so. And to him, in general, the concept was strange as shit and could be used to promote some even stranger ideas about dimensions and probabilities and that sort of thing, which like figures, right? You know, our ideas of dimensions as taught to us by string theory nowadays are that, you know, there could be multiple realities that are laid on top of each other. And that could account for some very strange angles, (laughs) right? And all of that stuff could conceivably be covered by non-Euclidean geometry. So it makes sense that Lovecraft threw that term around to mean funky, fucking occult, weird shit. Well, it's even like freaking me out to think about it, like thinking about these concepts. I'm like, I don't, that's like, it's like melting my brain almost. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's hard enough to get your head around those theories that build triangles and squares and circles on a piece of paper which like to me and you seem difficult to people with math minds um, and people a lot smarter than us it's probably no big deal and and they get their heads around that much easier but i have a hard enough time with some of the higher forms of geometry let alone getting into parabolic surfaces meeting flats i don't even you know that's (laughs) i don't even want to try and think about that But uh, it makes sense that he used that in an alien, bizarre, threatening way. Because like you said, um, we do seem to have like a primitive fear of forms, shapes, architecture, whatever, that doesn't conform to those like basic ideas of what we think of as stable and right in the world. And Lovecraft throws out those, you know, Dreams in the Witch House is probably... You know, he sat down like that concept fuels this whole story, whereas the concept of non-Euclidean geometry and weird shit, it pops into Call of Cthulhu a little bit, but it's just kind of like flavoring. You know, he talks about the weird angles on the sunken city, like swallowing people up in ways that don't make sense and obtuse angles that act acute and shit like that. But it's, it's dreams in the witch house that really sort of like boils it down to, you know, if these, uh, if surfaces meet up in the right way (laughs) strange things can happen at that angle yeah he doesn't really explore the idea in terms of like like uh even um whispers in the darkness um he doesn't really he it's more he talks about the like the 
traveling to other worlds, like, you know, with your brain and the, the wavelengths and stuff, but he doesn't really explore like the, the angles and the mathematics in rep, like in terms of the occult, like, like actually right. practicing it mm. with mathematics as he does with, you know, the angles meeting and creating a portal to other worlds as he does with this story. Right, yeah, and I think that's probably because I, I would guess that in general, Lovecraft probably had much less a fascination and knowledge of the occult than people nowadays seem to want to think. Like, I, I don't think that stuff fascinated him nearly as much as science. He was just big into science, and especially French yeah. science of, of the day. Um, and he would throw it into, because he wrote horror stories, you know, he would tie that into witchcraft and stuff, but I don't see anything in his work that that says to me that he was like really big into actually a cult per se. I think, you know, like you said, he, he really liked to tie science concepts into what he was doing, but the whole deal with fringe math, like non-Euclidean geometry, is that it comes off a lot like magic, you know, when you don't understand it. Everything does. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, do you... In your own life, in your own personal experience, have you have you ever had any experiences relating to sacred geometry? You ever like looked at a mandala or a pentacle and had anything happen, or you know, any you got any tidbits, any anecdotes? <laughs> I have a very odd, um, odd experience. Okay, I've had a lot of like a lot of my early twenties until probably the last, till probably about twenty six, until I stopped like experimenting with like psychedelics and drugs and all that but not even just that i've always been more into like uh i've had very strange dreams my whole life so this this is why this story hits very close to home because it's about sleepwalking and dreaming um i had a very strange dream and um i slept in the attic of my uh girlfriend's mom's house a lot like um i'm really good friends with her brother so my brother-in-law now really um and we spent a lot of time up in his attic, which is very, it looks like Gilman's room. I always said, like, I always said it's like dreams in the witch house up there. It's like Gilman's room. Um, And she's even had the weirdest dreams you've ever had there. I mean, she's had the scariest dreams. I don't even, I can't even go into them, but there's like these weird doors that are shaped at different angles. It's like these, um, it's like little crawl spaces and the attic is very, a low ceiling, but it, bends at like a it's not just like a right angle and then you know goes at a 45 degree angle it's like it goes up uh like a weird 65 let's say 70 degree angle then cuts at like a 35 and then it's it looks like i I don't know it looks just very weirdly built but i had um a dream once where i was kind of like i guess incorporeal at like I was like kind of like an out of body experience, um, maybe astral projection. I was like out of my body, like moving through the house in darkness. And I heard a loud shriek and I jolted through from the attic down through the stairs, through the front door. And there was just a black figure, uh, like a blob amorphous, like almost like, but it had some kind of form like, and then the door shuts behind me and then I wake up. So, uh, I was kind of scared, scared of that house. Um, that's it. I guess if that's something with weird angles, then I guess that is an explanation. Sure, Maybe it's just, man. Yeah. <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah. And it reminds me of uh, a thing that 
probably when I first hit record on this, I had it in mind, but I've spaced on it in between then and now, but now I got it again. Um, I very briefly, uh, for like a year and a half, lived in a tiny little house when we first moved to this town that I live in currently. And it was like, uh, it was all wood paneling on the inside, like dark wood paneling and had small windows and few windows. It was just like a really dark house. And it, it always seemed like it seemed really thick with shadows. And my bedroom was on the corner of the house. And it had, on all four sides of me, I either had windows or doors. And I had the strangest fucking dreams the whole time that we lived there. And I I have journal notes from back in those days attributing to it. Like I made a note in reference to dreams in the witch house and was like, uh, there must be some strange angles in this place. And, or there's something really kooky about sleeping in a room that has an opening on all sides of you. I don't know. So something like energetically about that place was really strange. And I had a whole lot of weird dreams uh, the whole time we were there and they went away as soon as we left there. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My, my dreams just stopped. Um, it was like right before my first son was born. Um, I haven't I haven't had dreams like that since I I stayed there the last time. That was like one of the last times I stayed there. I haven't haven't had a dream like that since. Huh. So very weird. Is it an old place? <laughs> very old, very old. And the stories that my girlfriend has, she grew up there. I mean, she said she had dreams of like two children like luring her down the stairs, and like maybe like uh, one that was like all the presidents of the United States walking down the stairs and like greeting her. What? And she says this stuff was like lucid like she was awake when this happened but she's a very weird dreamer too but i mean like like <laughs> i said we have um we have very active uh dream cycles i mean uh imaginations as well so i mean i guess why we're kind of a thing um that's one thing that we just click on is the horror stuff so um yeah man i i don't um i so very rarely remember my dreams which is mostly like in my experience, it's for the best. Like I, I only really remember my dreams if, for some reason, I have not smoked weed recently. Which is like I smoke weed all day, every day. I'm a yeah. full blown fucking pothead. But if if you know shit comes up every now and then, you got a day, some shit's up going down, you can't smoke, and you go to yeah. bed with like a twelve hour period where you haven't smoked. And I'll remember my dreams then and they're never fucking good they're always absolutely terrible often like in really fucking bizarre terrifying lovecraftian kind of ways which is probably just because of my lifetime of i've warped <laughs> my brain yeah with this shit you know since i was a small lad i have read nothing but really fucked up shit and watched nothing but really fucked up shit and done a lot of fucked up shit so you know I've probably done this to myself and it's probably like nothing special, but it, it comes with the territory, man. <laughs> right. I'm sure. But so, uh, did you, I think you mentioned this to me before you don't smoke anymore, right? Uh, I just started smoking, um, CBD flower. Like, uh, recently it doesn't have oh, THC in it, but I mean, uh, I, I used to love smoking. I mean, I used to do it every single day. <laughs> uh, I just stopped. I just started, I started getting really bad anxiety. And then yeah, yeah like I happens, literally like yeah. the, the last few weeks I started smoking CBD flour, which is just literally high cannabinoid. I just roll up a joint and smoke it. And it's literally just like feeling stoned, but you just don't kind of get the psychedelic 
psychedelic psychoactive effect of it um but it definitely, definitely works yeah it's actually pretty awesome okay <laughs> Yeah. Do you can you recall um you know any changes in your dreams when you did quit smoking? Yeah, yeah, definitely like I was going to say um if I would like before I I didn't really used to drink a lot. I used to just only smoke pot, but um when I would smoke and then not smoke as much like the next night my dreams would be stranger or like say I like smoked a lot a lot that night, I would have crazy dreams. Um it definitely affected oh, okay. my 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 dreamscape a lot um I, like i said I've, I've dude i've had nightmares since I, I can remember i i can remember one of my first nightmares dude i remember like like seeing the poltergeist clown pull me under the bed just like in the movie Ooh, like i mean no no yeah i used to be terrified but i mean i was around horror movies growing up so i was always scared of them <laughs> right yeah that that's interesting man i normally like anytime i bring this up with other smokers especially people who have uh, smoked for a long time and then quit or whatever um there always seems to be a correlate like a shift in your dreams or or possibly your remembrance your memory of your dreams when uh when either you're smoking or not and it seems like you kind of had the the opposite effect of me as me like i if i'm good and baked before bed which is you know 99 percent of of evenings uh I will not remember my dreams at all. And if I do, it'll be like halfway through the day. The next day I have some vague recollection of an image or something. When something similar happens to me throughout my day, I'm like, Oh yeah, I had a dream about this or that or whatever, but I don't. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like if I, for some reason go to bed, uh, completely not stoned, I will have the most crazy, epic, fucked up nightmares. (laughs) Dude, I'll even have weird dreams if I like eat something I usually don't eat. Cause most of the time I don't eat meat, but like sometimes I'll like oh. I'll dabble and like like just recently I've really I mean I didn't eat meat for like five years or so, but I just recently started like just eating it on the weekends or something. Um, I like eat like a just a couple pieces of a steak or like half a steak or like something like that. I'll have weirder weirder dreams when I have eat something strange out of my diet. You know what I mean? Huh. It affects me a lot. I don't know. That is, that's also interesting, man. Yeah. I mean, it's not like that. So that's not unheard of. Obviously that used to be a really common cliche, right? Anytime anything weird happened to somebody, you read like a sci-fi or a horror story from the fifties or the sixties. And when something weird happens to somebody and they mention it to their friend, what does their friend say? Oh, you had a bad mushroom. You had a, you know, you shouldn't have drank that beer or whatever. It's always like, Oh, you had a weird sandwich or whatever. Yeah. You shouldn't eat those. Nowadays we're like, yeah, right. You know, and that kind of has phased out of modern Western mentality. Like we really don't say that to each other anymore. Cause I feel like most of us, have at least a passing familiarity with actual drugs and what they will do to you. And so the concept of like you ate a weird barbecue sandwich, you know, and it made you see a UFO probably doesn't occur to most of us nowadays. Cause you've, you probably smoked some weed or eaten some mushrooms or something. And you know, you know what it's like to be like really fucking intoxicated or psychedelically effective affected, but that used to be, you know, quite a common thing that people would say. And uh, even though we don't really say it anymore, it still is true. Everything that we eat or drink affects us, obviously. Yeah, yeah. I think anything you put in your body has some kind of 
uh, it has some kind of a, I mean, I just, like I said, dude, like a lot of the reason I'm really like weird about my diet is because I think what you put into your body is definitely going to affect you in some way. Like if you eat shitty food all the time, dude, you're probably going to feel shitty. You know what I mean? Like certain, certain, you know, vitamins are in different, you know, certain even hormone triggers are in different types of food. So, I mean, you know, that's what we are. We are just literally like chemical reactions in our brain. Right. And so why wouldn't that have an effect? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, Oh, you know what? No, 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 no. Before, before we move off of geometry, here's the thing I wanted to talk to you about. Are you familiar with the phrase, the stone tape theory? No, no, I'm not. Okay, so the, the stone tape theory is basically just that in the same way that a camera with light coming through a lens being projected onto a recordable medium can record images for posterity, it's certainly within reason in terms of physics that a house may accidentally perform the same function, right? A, a camera is a box with glass in it that allows light to pass through certain parts of it, right? And a house is a box with a lot of glass parts in it. Um, so the stone tape theory goes that houses or various different structures could possibly record sound and image the same way that cameras do or that recorders do. And then a lot of what we see or hear, a lot of what we experience as possible hauntings are really just like replays, you know? I would believe this more than actual like apparitions for the most part. Um, because I, like, dude, I've been into, you know, supernatural stuff as long as I can remember. I used to go ghost hunting and stuff. Never have I once seen anything actually like I can really say that was truly a, like a spectral haunting. However, I've heard stories of people and every time I say it, I say maybe it was some kind of like reflection, let's say, uh, you know what I mean? Like maybe it was just like some uh -huh. kind of uh -huh. accidental image being projected. But this this touches it on the nose, man. I didn't even know there was a term for the, the theory. Um I'm looking it up right now and I'm like, damn, this is like pretty, pretty spot on for me. <laughs> right on. Yeah, I think I think it's been around since the 70s. I think people have been saying that, but I'm not sure. I just heard it like a couple of years ago on a fairly cheesy paranormal podcast I listened to called Jim Harold's Campfire Stories. Um, it's only cheesy because Jim Harold is kind of cheesy and he does a lot of advertising and I think he's like a fucking Trumper or something. But, um, <laughs> but otherwise his story is just like normal folks calling him in like a radio show and telling their spooky tales, spooky real life tales. And a lot of times the stone tape gets theory, stone tape theory gets brought up on Jim Harold. And I was like, that's a good way of, uh, it's a good phrase to use it's not a new idea to me because it's something like my dad has been saying to me since i was a, a little kid you know most of the reason that i'm fucked up and warped is because my dad is a weirdo and he's always been into the idea of like if we can record sound and image surely that accidentally happens in nature from time to time when you know when everything is just right like the the structure that we're talking about is just right and the weather is just right you know these things might get recorded and maybe when when all those parameters are hit again it replays maybe 
But I bring all this up because I would like to postulate to you the idea that perhaps, so let's take the stone tape theory a step further and say that uh, if image and sound can be recorded onto a thing, could maybe consciousness be recorded onto a thing? Which is obviously something that like modern technology delves into a lot, right? Transhumanism is all about, let's try and figure out how to store our consciousness and pass it along in the future so that we can live forever. But um, it's vaguely fucking possible that through stone tape theory, Keziah Mason's consciousness, her soul, whatever represents us as people, the fucking electromagnetic pulse that powers this bag of bones and meat that we are, perhaps she was recorded into the strange angles of that house, and perhaps that's how she's pulling all this off. You know what I mean? I think that's pretty... I mean, I never even thought about it that way. I've never even thought about it from that perspective. Um, but maybe and maybe even it was her... She willfully sought out to do that so she could have kind of this immortality. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Or maybe she even uh, happened upon that house and found that it had the proper angles to pull off such a thing. Yeah. Um, since she did have a wicked awesome black magic book about high math and total bonkers string theory shit. <laughs> Obviously, you know, she could have figured this out. Um, but yeah, I just think that like if, if a house can double as a camera and a VCR, like a camera, a tape and a VCR, couldn't a house possibly perform the same function as like a thumb drive or a hard drive. And, you know, in like our modern ideas of, of technology, could a person record themselves into a structure <laughs> for safekeeping? Maybe that was the maybe that was part of a ritual that she could perform. You know what I mean? Maybe that was part. Of, maybe it's in the book. Exactly. There you go. And yeah, I wasn't like asking you like, uh, you know, like, well, what do you think? Explain that to me, there, Edwin. <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> like, yeah. Does does any of that sound like it could fit within the scheme of this story? And I think you just answered that i love yeah, maybe that too. That's she, super cool yeah maybe because of her book she knew that she was looking for a place that had these angles that would you know in in the book's terms open a world to a new dimension right but what is magic what is occultism in general uh, magic and occultism is just tech and psychology that we do not understand Right. Shit that is so far beyond us that it seems like it must come from some supernatural place. And so, yeah, like she had a book that was like, peel these babies open and pray to the black man and he'll come and open a portal to a new dimension where you can hide and be free of the police, where you can keep slicing up babies forever. And yeah, sure, maybe that's like what the book said, more or less, but maybe the actual science behind it, the actual truth behind it is that she just was able to record herself into this place with these strange angles that allowed for such a thing hey and think about it too dude that makes a really good point because walter gilman she has to use him for her bidding you know what i mean like she has to use a physical to move yeah right yeah 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 it's because she's dead and gone and the only thing that's in the house is what's recorded of her Perhaps. Right, and she was Perhaps. she was put to death, correct? Wait, wait, was she put to death in the story, right? I can't remember I, if she... uh, Oof. I wanna say part of me wants to say yes, 
But the other yeah, part of me wants to say she was never that. caught. Yeah. yeah. However, though, she has to use a a like a willing participant or rather unconscious participant to do her bidding, even through sleepwalking. You know what I mean? Through dreams. She can't travel really super to, by means of she can't get in a car and go kidnap a kid, obviously. Right. So. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, it seems seems like she can't for sure. Yeah. And yeah. So what, what, like if you think of a, a sleeping person as um, uh, fuck, I'm, an, I'm like not a computer guy, but I'm trying to put this into computer terms. But um, so uh, like if 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 in theory, if when we sleep, we are dormant machine, right? Like when we're awake, we're a fucking living meat robot. And we've got ideas and we're doing things of our own accord and all of that. But say when we're asleep, we're in standby mode. Well, maybe another consciousness could fucking jack your meat robot, you know? Exactly. And maybe maybe that's all she's doing. So we could possibly boil all the non-Euclidean geometry black magic talk into some much more basic ideas about transference of consciousness it makes the makes the story seem even more like probable in a scary sense, you know what I mean? Which makes it even <laughs> right. more exactly, you know? exactly. That's we yeah. just like updated the updated that story. You know what I'm saying? We just literally just modernized that story. That was pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> that was pretty good. And uh, so, uh, in occult terms uh, and chaos magic, if you're familiar with Peter Carroll or chaos magic at all. You might already be aware of this concept, but um, a big part of occultism, a really, you know, a solid idea that for me in my own life has has certainly shown results. And I I know people who have in their personal life uh, utilized this this technique to effect. But so in in occultism, oftentimes you'll be uh, (laughs) so if you want to if you want to find your way to a really grand insight or if you want to really, really shake up your consciousness and yourself, if you really want to fucking institute a change within yourself, you can do something that is so far outside of your norm, that's so far removed from something you would normally do that, that is taboo. If, if you do something that edges into actual taboo territory, you can shake up yourself. You know, you can like dig silt up from the bottom of your tank that you didn't know you were didn't know what that was there you can uncover truths about yourself angles of yourself that you didn't know anything about if you will just step outside of your comfort zone and do something really fucking bizarre something that will shake you up monumentally and there's a lot of different ways you can achieve this right like back in my stranger things episode i talked about it a lot because uh stranger things is based on some shit that happened at the montauk long island where allegedly they were kidnapping homeless kids and putting them through such rigorous abuse that they tapped into out-of-body experiences, ESP, telekinesis. And in the show, you see that. You see Eleven getting pretty horrifically abused, like her whole life in a lab. But what, you know, allegedly what happened on Montauk Long Island in real life was that there was a whole lot of sexual abuse being perpetrated on these children in these labs, which the reason these fucking assholes were doing this is because there's a very real occult technique of shocking somebody's senses through sexual assault. I cannot off the top of my head remember the name of these Indian monks, but there's a, there's a sect of 
I think they're a sect of Hindi shamans uh, in India and in parts of Pakistan. I think that these guys, like the initiation ritual into their group is that once you reach a certain age, and I think it's 13 or maybe 14, you as a 13 or 14 year old boy are taken to this ancient creepy cemetery out in the middle of nowhere where the elder shamans of the group rape you. What? It sounds fucking totally bonkers. I know, yeah. right? Um, but they assault these boys, and when they come out the other side, they have insights on life that they would never have fucking reached otherwise. And again, I'm not like supporting these guys' decision to do this to each other. I will say that it's consensual. The people who join the ranks of this group, they know what they're getting into. You know, they, they know what they're doing. Um, it's not like they take these boys unawares. But they do that. They, they sexually assault these, these boys as a initiation into their group. And like when you're put through that kind of trauma, it is said that you, you will reach an out of body experience much easier. (laughs) Easier is not really the word for it, but, um, you know, it's one thing to sit on your floor and meditate yourself into a, a different consciousness that takes discipline and practice and a whole lot of time. But if you are shaken up, so extremely like you would be if you were sexually assaulted you might reach that place quick you know you you bypass like all the personal work that you got to do to get to there yeah it's like utilizing trauma in a practice almost right yeah so the reason i bring that up is because perhaps uh kazaya mason's black magic book of geometry that taught her how to record her consciousness into this old house (laughs) for future storage Maybe, maybe the reason that she has to kill babies or kill a baby or whatever she did, maybe it was just as simple as that. Maybe it was just that classic occult idea of breaking the taboo. Like she killed a baby because it was the most heinous, soul-shaking shit she could do in her life, which is what forced her into the proper headspace to then record her headspace into a house forever. It's a theory. I mean, dude, that is like, I don't think anybody's ever even broke down dreams in the witch house in this type of way. You know what I mean? Which it really does. Like, I mean, it's making a shit ton of sense. It's like giving Kazaya this motive, that motive and, you know, in-depth structure to her practice, practice, which we never, I mean, no one really ever thinks about, you know what I mean? That's, it's giving her more development. (laughs) Right. Well, the thing about Lovecraftian, antagonists and protagonists Lovecraftian protagonists are often on the same path right they get a kooky old fucking book they read and do a lot of shit that they know they shouldn't be fucking doing and it leads them to a mind unraveling realization right so like his good guys and his bad guys deal with that same kind of stuff but what what I've experienced in my life as an occult practitioner the older I get the more I look at Lovecraftian antagonists, people like Kaziah Mason and people like uh, the Waite family, you know, from the Dunwich Horror and stuff. And I identify with them so strongly, man. If you put a book in front of me and said that if you perform this ritual, you will bring into our world, you know, this thing from beyond time and space that will totally fuck shit up. Man, I'm going to tell you straight up, Edwin, I... I think I would do it. 
you know like that's just the kind of guy i have become <laughs> you're looking for answers dude and this this would solidify those answers that even lovecraft says man what we fear is the unknown and so these people want to know the unknown because then you're not afraid anymore you know what i mean right and they're and you know in particular the people in his stories are so willing to reach that truth that they will do things like kill a baby uh, you know and so on and so forth uh, for the record, not saying I kill a baby. What I'm saying is um, I identify with these people who seem on surface level to be total monsters and just completely insane. Like I get the mentality behind digging into these ancient secrets to see if there's truth there, even in even in the face of danger. Uh, even in the face of great cataclysmic danger, I still see that interest and I still still see that drive as a person because I personally have that drive, you know. Um, and I, I've done things in my personal life that I would never have done if, if we're not in the name of occultism, in the name of magic practice or ceremony. And I've got a lot out of those experiences in my life. And so, again, uh, not going to stab a baby, but I get the motivation behind somebody being so hell bent on finding that truth, you know, that next level experience in life that maybe you would be pushed to that point. And, yeah, we look at characters like Keziah Mason and you're like, oh, she's just a purely ancient evil old crone that just gets off on stabbing babies. But that's nobody. Nobody is that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, what she really is is somebody who wanted to get to that goal, even if she had to kill a baby. <laughs> right, right. It eschews morality too. I mean, you look at you look at the whole story, and you're like, like we said, we're breaking it down and giving her some depth to it. And you think about it, what foundation does morality really have besides what our cult- culture tells us? Do you know what I'm saying? Like. None. Um, yes, exactly. <laughs> like I said, both of us agree. Obviously, obviously, we're not going to kill a baby. You know what I mean? That's like, nope. we just know we're not supposed to do that. But at the same time, what about these other, there's other people out there that will push boundaries, let's say not to kill a baby, but to do also more heinous acts, like say, you know, I mean, assassinations, for example, assassinations for the greater right. good to reach this kind of level of truth. You know what I mean? There's, there's all these boundaries that people can be pushed as humans and morality is always kind of um a gray area really oh yes yeah, so. a sliding scale for sure man and on the same note we can apply that to gilman gilman was so hell-bent on finding some of the truth in his bonkers math that he was into that instead of you know hard pressing this to authorities like he probably should have he just kept pressing deeper and deeper into the dark until it was too late for him i mean there's a point i think where he it's certainly in the film, there's a point where he stops pushing, um, where he's like, oh, I got to leave this alone. But it's way too late for him that at that point. I mean, Keziah has already seen him and took note and put the mark on him and, you know, and all of that. It's too late for Gilman at that point. But the same drive. But he should have left the, the house. The, he should have left the house the day he knew some fucked up shit was going. He had a choice. You know what I mean? Exactly. He had a choice to keep diving down and his. His his intrigue and curiosity is what drove him to make those the poor decision, man. Right. Yeah, absolutely, sir. Yeah, which I think is brilliantly brought home by that scene where he he wakes up in the like the vault room at the Miskatonic U library and he's holding the Necronomicon. Yes. (laughs) And uh, 
Yeah, and she's like, and "Where'd like, you get that book? Like, yeah, you should open yeah. that." And the, yeah, um, yeah, all of that uh, is like he's he had at that point been pressing for the truth so hard that even when he decided to back off, there was just you know the the pedal was already to the floor. He was already downhill. One of my favorite scenes in the film is when he's using his computer and he like figures out the equation and it shows the way that space and time can bend through the use of these angles somehow. And it kind of displays it on the computer Mm -hmm. screen. That was like his picture perfect proof of his theory. Like, you know what you're getting into. You know, this is a point of no return. And you did. It's not like he was showing scholars at Miskatonic University. He was no, looking yeah. into it for himself. You know what I mean? Right. <clears throat> yeah. Which, you know, that's the sort of driving uh, motivation for a lot of Lovecraft characters is that like I, this scientific discovery can be mine if I just turn this corner with it. You know, if I just figure it out, it can be mine. And can it can it can put me on the map, you know, of academia. Um, and I feel like that's what at least the film version of Gilman, I feel like that's what he was going for. The The story version feels yeah, for more, sure. more like a, he feels less motivated in the story than he does in the film. Um, yeah, definitely, definitely. Okay, well, it's a fucking, this seems like a weird order. Uh, every time I do this, I'm like, I got to reorder these questions because this doesn't seem like the right order. But, uh, <laughs> you know, at, at this point, I'm going to ask you, did anything about Dreams in the Witch House not work for you? Honestly, man, uh, I'm trying to think of something that I really didn't like about it. I mean, no, man, I don't, I don't really have anything I can say that really doesn't, that turns me off about the, I mean, like, this is something that like me and my friends watch over and over, you know I mean? This is something that we've, this is like kind of like a staple for our Lovecraft lore on our own. You know what I mean? So cool, man. Yeah. I think it just, it works on so many levels because it brings across Lovecraftian horror and cosmic horror in a really nice, like subtle way. But then it's also working on a lot of super basic horror levels that are just grimy and are going to get anybody. Like, I don't give a shit who you are. Anytime I've ever introduced dreams in the witch house to somebody and it gets to the part where like Gilman is in his dreams and he's banging up that beautiful chick from next door or whatever. And then cut to that, funky hag is on him you know <laughs> and she's all like ah! oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, that's so fucked up that that gets anybody that's like a very basic kind of horror movie thing you know what i mean it's like a jump scare almost yeah but it's full this adaptation is full of things like that 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 work for any old person and it also works on a level for people who understand lovecraftian horror and that's rare to get both of those things in one like, I, I think Dagon is a tough sell for a lot of people because it's a big concept, you know? You're like, what fucking fish people living in a weird coastal town? Fuck, blow them up, you know? And it's like, nah, that's not... <laughs> it's much bigger than that, man, and it's much worse than that. Like, the real horror is finding out that your mom was from Fishtown and you're a fish man. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, that's... And you're gonna go back to live with your immortal god in the sea, Cause you have no choice. Like that's the horror. The horror is not creature from the black lagoon times a thousand in Spain. You know what I mean? Yeah. But anyway, I got you. long story, long way around saying that no, everything about this movie works for you. 
so now let's let's fucking bring it home, Edwin. And here on Ritual Light and Sound, we rate things on a skull rating that is one to ten skulls. How many skulls do you give Stuart Gordon's dreams in the witch house? I gotta give it ten skulls. I mean, I give right it ten on. skulls, dude. I mean, straight up, but that's how I feel about it. <laughs> yeah, no, I I got to agree with you, man. I got to agree with you. There's some like little, uh, it's just, I guess, tiny little Nick shit that I won't even bring up because it's petty and I shouldn't even focus on it. But like tiny technical stuff that I might can nitpick at. But does it stop it from being a phenomenal adaptation of a Lovecraft story and being scary as shit and really unique and well done? No, it doesn't hold any of that back. And because of that, and because this is the first Lovecraft adaptation and one of the best ones, honestly, to me, like, Dreams in the Witch House, Dagon, and The Call of Cthulhu, like I said, are, are some of the best. And uh, for getting it so very spot on, I will I will join you in giving it 10 skulls. So two ratings of 10 skulls for Stuart Gordon's Dreams in the Witch House for me and Edwin Callahan of Gravely Unusual Magazine. So, you know, here we are. We have reached the end of our journey, sir. I would like to offer you this time to plug your plug your plug yourself sounds pretty gross. <laughs> so I'm not I'm not gonna. Re- I will shamelessly promote promote your stuff, man. Promote your stuff. Tell the people where they can find you and find your stuff. Yeah, you guys can find us at gravelinusual.bigcartel.com. That's where you're gonna order any products that we have. Um, it sounds like makeup. It's not fucking makeup. It's a it is a illustrated magazine. And you know, we got comics from creators that aren't you know. In the mainstream, some of them work for it. This is kind of a niche for them to get their stories out that nobody else will publish. We publish the stuff that is unpublishable. Um, same with fiction writers. We have, you know, unique, bizarro fiction, um, you know, just transcends from, you know, weird tales to fucking splatterpunk, you know. Um, there's no fucking censorship in this. It's just literally like as raw as you can get it has interviews um we interviewed joe bob briggs in our second issue bruce campbell was in our third issue we got merch we got you know so we do we have some other zines on on our website too um and i'm always on the social media just talking shit so uh you can find us at graveland usual on instagram at graveland usual on twitter we have facebook too at graveland usual so uh yeah check out anything we're doing yeah we also have a podcast graveland usual lives it's on spotify and all that that's where i kind of just which uh evan's been on before too so you know we just kind of just bullshit about horror and other cool things so uh yeah, definitely check us out and support the underground, man. Absolutely. The underground is the only ground that there is for real art. If I may, let me throw this out there, man. Listeners, if you are familiar with both heavy metal AD, the old school black and white magazine slash comic from the UK that ran Judge Dread and stuff like that. If you're familiar with heavy metal AD and old school horror mags like Creepy and Eerie, which were those plus-sized comic book kind of things. Gravely Unusual is like a mix between creepy and eerie and heavy metal AD, but also like a underground black metal, death metal zine. You, you get, like Edwin said, you get comic books, you get horror fiction, and then you get cool info about black metal and death metal, grindcore, all kinds of underground metal and awesome music really unique magazine and 
to me, you know, humble opinion, coolest thing printed on paper nowadays. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. Oh, you're you're so very welcome, man. I'm like I'm very disappointed in the current state of like horror publications. It's a it's a sad state of affairs out there. But uh, if if you're into that kind of stuff, you're into like old school grimy horror mag stuff underground comics black metal gravely unusual is for you and if you're listening to ritual light and sound because you're into lurking transmission obviously you're a fucking weird black metal creep and you 100 percent need to be owning and reading gravely unusual magazine again check out gravely unusual at big cartel right gravely unusual at big cartel.com gravely unusual dot big cartel.com okay i'm terrible <laughs> with the inner but yeah listen to everything that edwin said and check out gravely unusual they are cool as shit do you dare see what strange horrors are lurking just beneath the surface of your safe home environments everything you know and believe will be compromised with just a glance into the serpentine labyrinth of darkness that slithers between the evolutioning stitches that bind the fabric of our reality your friends your family your very concept of life and perception of being will be challenged when you pull back the thin veil we call existence which covers the abyss that threatens to swallow us whole upon a single moment's notice. So strap in and get ready to have your entire worldview warped by Super Deluxe Existential Fighter, now available on the Nintendo Virtual Boy console. You'll never be the same again. There are two big occult concepts represented in Dreams in the Witch House, that of both dreams and sacred geometry. But to cover both would be a mighty long episode, and since there are other films I can use to dive into dreams, the angle I chose to focus on for this episode is the concept of sacred geometry. The idea that lines and shapes and the angles at which they meet might be able to shape and direct energy, maybe even matter. So how accurate is Lovecraft and Gordon's representation of sacred geometry? Well, as Edwin and I discussed, if we look at the stone tape theory through the lens of sacred geometry, I think we have a decent framework for understanding how the actions of the witch Keziah Mason could be possible. If a house can be both a camera and a playback machine, it can perhaps be a hard drive. And if a house can be a hard drive, perhaps a practitioner could store their self onto this hard drive. And through a combination of will, geometry, environmental conditions, and magical techniques, they could perpetrate their work upon those who stray into their house. Perhaps. I lack the proper understanding and math vocabulary to really talk about non-Euclidean geometry with you listeners, but suffice to say that non-Euclidean geometry refers to parabolic surfaces meeting with two-dimensional surfaces, rather than simply dealing with two-dimensional surfaces and angles, such as in normal Euclidean geometry. A parabolic surface, in case you don't know, is a convex surface like a contact lens or a camera lens. Which brings me to this. By definition, listeners, a camera is a non-Euclidean structure. All this aside, how much sacred geometry do we really see represented in the film? Well, that depends on how you look at things, but here's a rundown by my observation. We first see the witch house itself, whole and real and right on screen. And the house chosen does indeed have a vibe. 
We see the dreaded corner in Gilman's room, the confluence of strange angles, the non-Euclidean building code nightmare that the witch Keziah Mason is able to utilize for her dark rituals and circumnavigation of time itself. We are presented with an occurrence that doesn't follow the typical trajectory of time as we know it, a perhaps non-Euclidean story, in that poor young Walter Gilman's life was not a line, but rather a crooked spiral that orbited the witch house and lured him into his doom, or his fate, however you choose to look at it. It has many angles, this story. I rate things on a hand of glory scale when it comes to occult authenticity here on Ritual Light and Sound, and I give Stuart Gordon's Dreams in the Witch House a 9 out of 10. Nine hands of glory for Dreams in the Witch House. Now it's time for some gematriography. Time for some more gematriography, y'all. In case this is your first episode of Ritual Light and Sound, this is where I practice the Kabbalist art of gematria on the title of a film. Gematria is the practice of getting a numerical value for a word in Old Hebrew, then looking for words and phrases associated with that number. Dreams in the Witch House added up to the number 943. And the first thing I found when referencing the number 943 was the phrase, the number of servitors of Asmode the demon. I've never seen Asmodeus spelled that way, as A-S-M-O-D-E-E, and the first E has an accent mark over it. Um, So I whipped out my handy Dictionary of Demons by Michelle Belange, and I looked this up. Turns out that Asmodee, with the accent mark over the first of the two E's at the end, is from the Mathers translation of the Abramelin text. And according to this translation, Asmodee can know the secrets of any person, can transmute metals, and can transmogrify people and animals. It appears in the Goetia as Asmodee, A-S-M-O-D-A-Y. Interesting, given the strange alloys in the short story version of Dreams in the Witch House, and given Brown Jenkin, the witch's rat familiar with the human face. After the Asmodee thing, here are some interesting phrases that I found also associated with the number 943. He seized... Elevated, she, changeless, constant, the appointed time, to seize suddenly, a brick, a tile, a building, an architect, meditation, imagination, sin, a hut, to ransom, avenge, a wall, to force to do wrong to, to shut up or obstruct, to measure out. (laughs) Damn. Those are all pretty much the high points of this story, y'all. And that's a wrap for the Dreams in the Witch House edition of Gematriography. Let's outro this mother and get out of this smoky room. In closing, Dreams in the Witch House is a great movie. My second favorite Stuart Gordon film behind Dagon. In the way that it's shot and edited, it does a great job of using space to convey story, and strangeness, and horror. It works on a loss of agency and circular logic that leads to a terrible, unavoidable fate for the protagonist. It feels like a tiny, winding maze that folds in on its own dusty corners until there is nowhere left to go but beyond the realm of sanity. I give it ten skulls. For achieving what I feel is an easily accessible depiction of the possible horrors of non-Euclidean geometry and the black arts, I give it nine hands of glory. Dreams in the Witch House is an infanticidal architectural nightmare, 
with a creepy-ass rat with a human face. Next up on Ritual Light and Sound, Synecdoche, New York. That's right, Charlie Kaufman's directorial debut. A bonkers movie about the power of the mind, the power of curated space, or ritual space, if you will, and about creators and creations. An environment so meticulously crafted and so thoroughly and wholeheartedly engaged with that it becomes reality. Catch you then. Thanks for listening to Ritual Light and Sound. I've been your host, Evan Dean Shelton. Check out the Lurking Transmission Presents Patreon page to find out how you can get access to every single episode of Ritual Light and Sound and not just the odd-numbered, publicly available ones. Episode 4 is about Hellraiser and out-of-body experiences, and it is a leather-bound, bare-assed doozy. Join the Lurking Transmission Presents Patreon to hear it, and other exclusive cool stuff. Until next time, remember, film is ceremonial magic, performed for you at roughly 24 sigils per second. How is it affecting you? I think that all vital periods of the drama and of literature are periods of great violence and that all of our great plays and novels are violent. And I don't like them when, when they are poor novels or when they are not works of art, they become uh, shoddy and seem to be, uh, seem to be pandering. Yes, but it's usually wicked, you know. Virtue triumphs. Whereas in the horror comics, it doesn't. Oh, doesn't it? I don't think so. Though. No. Well, it doesn't in Edgar Allan Poe either, you know. Eraserhead David Lynch and Fred Elms, who is the lighting cameraman, the same picture. And where, where are we right now? We're down in the tanks right now. The tanks? Yeah. You can, uh, it's one of the locations. Yeah, we shot an early scene of uh, Henry just walking through here. We had a, lo a longer scene uh, rigged up, and if you look down here, you can see uh, what remains of a, of a cat we had down here. Was this here when you when you uh, got here? No, I brought brought this down here. Oh. <laughs> this I got from a veterinarian. It was just died, and um, so. Uh, he let me, you know, work with it, and it wasn't uh, like this, but when we, got, when we were working with it, um, it went into the water there, and there's a lot of tar in there, and it got covered with tar and uh, preserved itself. That was five years ago hmm. that that was there. But that never got into the film. No, that cat's not in the film, but Henry walks right from over there through here and comes right to here so in a sense it's right just below the shot uh, that's in the film is this cat uh -huh.